2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? I don't know if like me you've ever made plans and they just didn't work out the way you thought they would. Are we, uh, when we graduated from Bible college on the day that we were leaving to go uh, back to our home city of Norwich, um, it was an important day because our long-serving pastor was retiring that day. It was a Saturday, and there was a big retirement due at the church that evening, and we really needed to be there. So we planned to leave early in the morning, about 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Bible College packed up the car, and uh, we decided, because the college was down in Surrey, we decided to stop off for lunch at Jean's sister and her husband's home in Chelmsford. So we set out in our little car. In those days, we drove right through London, past Harrods and all that way. And uh, we got onto the A12 to Chelmsford, and the engine of the car coughed and died. Now, in those days, we were poor students, couldn't afford a breakdown service, so we did the next thing. We called Jean's sister and brother-in-law in Chelmsford, and he came out and helped us. He was quite handy with things, and after about a, an hour or two, he got the engine working, and we drove on to Chelmsford, just got to their house, and the engine coughed and died again. We had lunch with them, spent most of the afternoon and early evening trying to get the car going. Eventually we did, and we got to Norwich just as the retirement due finished and people were coming out of the church. And we were really upset about that. We'd made our plans carefully, but it just didn't work out the way we planned. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians is talking about something just like that. He'd planned, he says, to meet Titus in Troas. But when he got there, Titus was nowhere to be found. Paul, he says, had a great door of opportunity open to him in Troas, but he just couldn't get peace of mind. He was anxious, he was fretting, and he left Troas and that opportunity because Titus was not there. Now you need to ask yourself the question, why was it so important to meet Titus in Troas? Well the answer to that is that you need to note that I read from 2 Corinthians. In a previous letter, Paul had had to deal with the church 
in Corinth over some really serious issues in a very harsh way as its founder. And um, he had sent Titus a little later over to Corinth to find out how the letter was received and how the church was doing. And Titus was due to report on that at Troas. And so Paul was fretting about what had happened, why he hadn't heard news, how did they receive the letter, and he just could get no peace and rest. And so a great opportunity to preach the gospel had to go by the by. Over the years, I've met a number of super spiritual Christians who would rather look down on we lesser mortals who sometimes fret and worry and get anxious. I don't know if you've met some like that, but I have. Well, of course, we should trust the Lord at all times. Um, uh, He is faithful. But I want to confess this morning to being one of those lesser mortals that sometimes over certain issues get very anxious and fret and worry and have it take over my mind and have to really deal with that. At times like that, I'm encouraged to know that even the Apostle Paul had moments like that. But Paul tells us that even... At times like that, he says, we have a saviour who causes us to triumph. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. Paul's painting a word picture here from events of his time. When a victorious Roman general Uh, conquered another nation or area, they would, as he returned back to Rome, put on a massive triumphal procession for him. And that's what Paul is describing here, a victory parade. In fact, in the Roman Empire, history tells us there were 320 such great triumphal processions in its history. The Roman general or conqueror would lead the uh, triumphal, victorious army. He'd ride into Rome on a chariot. Following behind would come among uh, his soldiers, after his soldiers, all the captives that they'd taken from that place to bring back to Rome. James May gives a good description of who would be among those captives. He says this, some of those slaves would be brought back to be saved, which meant they would be allowed to live as servants. After this group would come the conquered enemies that were being brought back to face execution. Both groups of slaves were given incense to carry into the city. As they walked along, the odor of the incense would arise from their vessels and slowly drift over the crowd. The smell of victory for the Romans would bring a shout of triumph, but it meant something different for those who carried it. The first group was referred to as them that carry the savor of life unto life, even if it was to be a servant or slave. The second group was referred as them that carry the savour of death 
unto death. So you can see this uh, description Paul is giving of Christ's triumphal uh, train is straight from the Roman victory parade. He's saying that Jesus is our great victor. And he's leading this great procession in victory. But we're the captives in his triumphal train. On the cross, Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil. And opened up a way to God. In fact, he declared, he said, I am the way. In Colossians 2, 14-15, in uh, the message paraphrase, it puts it like this. Think of it, it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, the old arrest warrant cancelled, and nailed to the cross of Christ. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Here again in Colossians, he's using the same picture of Christ's triumphal train. So we're not, not the conquering general, or champion, Jesus is. He's the one in the chariot. He's the one who's overcome, who's defeated the enemy of God. He's the one who is leading the triumph. He has triumphed. We are those who are followers of him, conquered by his grace. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. Jesus is the one who has conquered us by his grace and made us useful for the work of his kingdom. He uses each of us for the conversion of sinners. His sharp sword, the word of life, has penetrated deep into our hearts and brought us under the subjection of his lordship. It's Jesus who has chosen us, Jesus who has called us, it's Jesus who empowers us to work for him. I, when I was young, used to, Sometimes sing a, a, an old song, Calvary conquered my heart. The word says, when I gazed on the tree, saw Christ dying for me. That's when Calvary conquered my heart. Now he has won me. I'm his evermore. Gladly I'll worship him, love and adore. Here on earth's journey to heaven's bright shore, for Calvary conquered my heart. We're the captives in Christ's triumphant train. And I'm going to come a little later on to the reason we're in his triumphal train, and that's his, his servants. But I want to get back to the fact that there were two groups in that triumphal train. Remember the saved and the condemned? Jesus said there are two groups on earth like that too. In Matthew 7.13, he said, Enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it can I ask you this morning a personal question which group are you in the saved or the condemned there are only two groups, Jesus said. Let me explain what I'm saying a little more. Verse 14, but thanks be to God 
who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Please note it says in Christ's triumphal procession. To be led in triumph over sin, death, and the devil, you've got to be in Christ's triumphal procession in the group called the saved. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life, eternal, heaven, forgiveness is all in Christ. You can't find it anywhere else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. There's no room to sit on a fence while you try and make a decision. You're either in Christ or you're outside of Christ. You're either in the saved or you're in the condemned. The Bible gives no middle ground. Please note verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other an aroma that brings life. Just as those following a Roman general's triumphal train carried incense that spread everywhere, so we carry, the Bible says, the presence and good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherever we, we go, as born-again Christians, we can't not carry it. But the Holy Spirit lives in us. To those who hear and receive the gospel, we are the aroma of life. To those who reject the presence and gospel of Jesus, we're the aroma of death, the Bible says. The gospel is so important. During my years of ministry, I must have organized many, many evangelistic missions and special events and always found them of great value and bringing many to Christ. But can I say this, that we must never allow church-organized events, evangelistic efforts, to replace our sharing the gospel with those around us, with carrying the aroma of Christ. Now, I'm not a fan, I have to say this, I'm not a fan of what used to be called Bible bashing. I'm not a fan of pushing the gospel down people's throats that don't want to receive it. But I do believe that we should take every opportunity as Christians to share the gospel and even pray for such opportunities. In 1 Peter 3.15 we read, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I've underlined that last bit, but do this with gentleness and respect. There are so many opportunities. I remember uh, when I was still in ministry in our office, we had a laser printer. It was a fairly new one and it broke down and it was under a guarantee and, and they sent a, a man out to repair it. And he sat there in the office with the, the machine in pieces and uh, he looked around the office and he said, what do you do here then? What's your business? What an opportunity. 
But I didn't have to push it. God just opened it. And we, we spent about half an hour um, just talking about the Lord. And I shared my testimony. And it was just a golden opportunity. But it was such an easy opening. And, and that happens. But so often we miss those opportunities for different reasons. Many Christians shy away from sharing their faith because they feel inadequate to do so. Many people have said to me, well, I just don't know what to say. Peter didn't say, give a theological answer. He said, give a reason for the hope that you have. Anyway, sharing your faith is something you can learn to do. Your pastor here or, or Liz would be happy to point you to people in the church who could help you or they could help you themselves to learn how to share your faith and share it better. That said, note that Paul goes on to say, who is equal to such a task? It's a good question. You have to wait actually to chapter 3, verse 4, before you get the answer to that question. He says this, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, that, uh, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. I was saying, my wife and I were talking about uh, different tasks you get in ministry sometimes and how we felt sometimes totally inadequate for them. And I said, yeah, but remember that, that song we sometimes like to sing in worship? He, he raised me up. And it goes on to say, he raised me up to more than I could be. Our confidence, our competence, our, our gifting, our, our anointing all comes from God. It doesn't come from us. You, you don't have to be clever or uh, outward going. Uh, the, the most exciting person I saw one to Christ was one to Christ uh, by a, a leader of three of us when we were trained to be evangelistic. Um, he was a shy person with a stutter who you would not pick to be leading an evangelist team, door knocking. First door we knocked, it, we ended up being invited in. He led that man to Christ. And I thought, wow, if he can do it, anyone can do it. The gospel is so important. Verse 15, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. There's something about the presence of Jesus. There really is. And, and using the sweet-smelling aroma as an analogy for that is so apt. There's something about the presence of Jesus that attracts our attention, melts our hearts, quickens our senses, and just brings us alive. That's why in church here we love the presence of Jesus. When Jesus appeared to Peter and John when they were washing their fishing nets, they had a good fishing business there. He said, follow me. They just dropped everything and left it all there to follow him. There was something about Jesus that just made them do that. When Matthew was sitting at the seat of customs, he had a really well-paid job there. Jesus said, Matthew, follow me. 
He just left it all to follow him. Something about the presence of Jesus that changes a whole perspective. Of course, you don't have to leave your job to follow Jesus. Just say that. The psalmist said in Psalm 16, you will fill me with joy in your presence. John says in 1 John 3:19, we set our hearts at rest in your presence. Jude called his presence in verse 24 glorious. Something about the presence of Jesus. Because when Jesus shows up, anything is possible. When he eventually, four days after Lazarus had died, turned up in Bethany, it was Mary who said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But even now, whatever you ask God, he'll give you. Jesus knew if Jesus was there, even death could not stand in his presence. And in fact, he showed her that even after death, he was still Lord of life. There's something about the presence of Jesus. And Paul says we carry the aroma of Christ, the presence of Christ with us wherever we go. When the disciples stood before the Pharisees, the Pharisees couldn't help notice there was something about these guys. In Acts 4.13, it says they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Without the aroma of Christ, we can't bring life to anyone. Arthur Sheldon uh, uh, Van Oken wrote, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they're somber and joyless, self-righteous, smug, narrow, and repressive. Those of us like me who enjoyed a bit of fishing in the past will be familiar with the old quote, old fishermen never die, they just smell that way. <laughs> if we carry the aroma of a carnal life or a lukewarm Christianity, we will impact no one. Yet sadly, too many professed Christians live that way. There's a verse in Hosea 7, 8. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake not turned over. I love the way the New Living Translation renders that. The people of Israel mingle with godless foreigners, making themselves as worthless as a half-baked cake. Is that where the saying half-baked comes from? Probably. Ephraim was godly on one side, but worldly on the other. In those days, when they cooked unleavened bread, they cooked it on, on hot coals, and they'd cook one side, then they'd flip it over and cook the other, like we would an omelette or maybe a pancake. He says they've only been cooked on one side. They've, they've allowed one side to be put to the flames and, and fire, but not the other. They're living two ways. They're half-baked. Today we might say they've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church or one foot in Christ. Revelation 3.15, Jesus said, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Serious stuff, isn't it? 
Where's our love? Where's our commitment for Jesus? One writer said, when you make a commitment to God and you don't fulfill that commitment to the best of your ability, that leaves a bad odor. If you commit to work, doing some duty in the church, that you need to do it to the best of your ability. And he goes on to say, why wouldn't someone who says they love the Lord not want to spend time in his house? Can I ask you a question? Have the Christians of the 21st century we're in lost their love for the Lord and their commitment to him? Is that why we're not impacting the world today like we need to? We're called to carry the aroma of Jesus Christ, but can only do that when we live in his presence and truly live for him. One more point I want to make. We are servants of Jesus. I want to come back to what I said more near the beginning. Remember that those that followed in the triumphant train, the saved, were saved to serve. You'll notice the Apostle Paul often introduces himself in his epistles as a servant. Um, a servant of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Colossians 4.12, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Timothy 4.6. Jude does that in uh, Jude 1, uh, verse 1, of course, of Jude. Servant is a translation of the Greek word doulos, which basically means slave or bondservant. But uh, it means someone who sets aside or rights of his own to serve another. Now the word slave today carries rightly so a negative connotation to our modern world and I'm glad it does. So we often choose the word servant instead. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. We are Christ's servants. Those who come to know him, we decide in our following Jesus to abandon all rights and make him Lord of our lives and serve him faithfully. One writer says we are naturally selfish beings. We live in a culture that is permeated with the message, serve me. Jean and I had a relative who whenever we visited and talked about anything, he'd always say, David, you've got to look after number one. In other words, everything's got to serve me. That's not how it is when we're servants of Christ. Everything in our lives is about him. The Bible says this in Philippians 2, uh, 3 to 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Now if that's true about our relationship with each other, how much more should that be true about our relationship with the Lord? In the same chapter of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. 
One writer says, in order to be this kind of servant, you must be involved in the kingdom of God. The old adage is true. The more you put into something, the more you get out of it. We need Christians to be reminded today, and I'm trying to do that now, that it's not all about us. That's the nature of the world we live in. It's all about number one. It doesn't matter about anyone else. It's pleasing yourself, choosing for yourself. But we are servants, followers of Jesus Christ, who himself became a servant to save us on a cross. One pastor recently wrote, having the attitude of a servant will totally change the way we view every relationship in our lives. It will change the way we view our church family, the reason we belong to a local church. Instead of focusing on what we get out of our relationships or out of church, we will focus on what we're putting into it. One final thought. Verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Remember the context? Paul was dealing with frustration, fatigue, failure, loneliness, worry, anxiety. David Dyke makes this point in his writing. Paul had arrived in one place and expected to find Titus. And he said that he didn't have any peace of mind. It would be like him saying, I thought I was a loser a failure, a defeated servant. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. So the victory isn't something that is only experienced when you're feeling great and everything is working in proper order. It's a victory that is available in any and every situation in life. The word but in verse 14 is so important. You may have everything against you. You may be a failure. You may feel defeated and useless. Problems you don't know how to handle. But God changes everything. But God changes everything. I close with this. In our first church, when we left Bible College, we were asked to follow... A, an evangelistic crusade, as they called them, then mission. They were going to found a new church in the north of England. They hired a public hall. They had two weeks of uh, evangelistic meetings and said, called us up there. They put us up with another pastor uh, and uh, committed us to it and said, whoever's left, you've got to make a church with. There were two people left, two people in a hired hall. For weeks and weeks, Every service, two people. We visited everyone we could imagine. We did everything we could think of, two people. One Sunday, we got so desperate before we could face the services, we felt like giving up and quitting. Felt we couldn't get on. Go on. So we got before God together, just Jean and I, and we just poured out our hearts to God where we were. That service that followed, we watched the door and the same two people came in. But five minutes later, another couple, then another couple, then more and more, until we were looking out on what was for us quite a small crowd of people. 
When you get desperate before God, the but God changes everything. The English Standard Version renders it, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Can we pray together, please? I want to, if it's okay, Dave, take a couple of minutes now to just give people an opportunity to respond to the word of God this morning. Remember the two groups following Christ's triumphal procession, the saved, those who were going to serve Jesus, and the condemned, those who rejected him. Let me ask you again, which group are you in? If you're not sure you're in the group that Jesus has forgiven and cleansed and made his own, then I want you to invite him into your heart this morning. I want you quietly in your heart to pray this prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, I confess my sin and failure before you. I acknowledge that you are the Saviour who died for our sin on the cross. Please come into my heart and life today. I will follow you. I will live for you. I choose you, Lord Jesus. Now, if you made that, said that prayer this morning, I want you to do something else after the service. And this is very important. The Bible says we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth. I want you to, pastor and his wife are always on the door. I want you as you leave to say, I said that prayer. Okay, and then they can pray for you. Or come and tell me or, or one of the other people in the church you know. It's very important. But I want to speak to Christians here too. Because we need to examine our hearts and our lives. We do that communion, but do we really do that? Are we lukewarm? Are we half-hearted? Are we truly, with all our hearts, serving Jesus? Do we serve ourselves? Do we put ourselves... Are we half-baked in our Christian lives? We need to repent of that. We need to put Jesus first. We'll never carry the aroma of Christ and see our world and others around us impacted if we don't. So I want to give you opportunity. Are you willing to rededicate your life to the Lord Jesus this morning? Say, Lord Jesus Christ. You can say it in your heart after me if you want. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm fed up of being half-hearted, lukewarm, half-baked. I want to live for you. I want to follow you. I want your presence in my life. I want to be fruitful for you. I commit myself afresh to following you this morning. And I give you all of my heart and my life. Father God, we thank you for your word. And pray, Lord, that you will just bring fruit from it. And make us fruitful for you as we go about our, our week carrying your very presence and your gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.